Hi, my name is Bob McMahon from the History Department and the Mershon Center, and uh, I, I'm happy to welcome you to the first of what will be several uh, speakers this year in our Diplomatic International History Speaker Series. And I'm really delighted that our first speaker for this year is going to be Elizabeth Borgwart from uh, St. Louis, from Washington University in St. Louis. And she is... Um, she is a person who's had a very interesting academic background in that she, um, she did her undergraduate degree at Cambridge University in, in Britain and stayed there to do a master's degree in international relations before uh, the law called her. And then she did um, a law degree at Harvard University. She practiced law for a few years, taught briefly at Stanford University, and then made the decision to try out uh, an advanced degree in history, which she did at Stanford University. So she has the unusual distinction of, of being uh, a historian who also has a law degree as well as several years of practical experience teaching the law, not to mention the unusual distinction of having an advanced degree in international relations as well. Among the community of those who study U.S. foreign relations, I think that, that may well be a unique academic background. And she brings that unique academic background to bear on her work, which is focused mostly on international human rights issues, uh, the evolution of international law and international institutions. Her first book, A New Deal for the World, came out in 2005 with Harvard University Press, and it was the recipient of two major book awards, one by the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations for the most outstanding first book that year, and the other uh, a major award from the Organization of American historians. Um, she's also taught in a number of places. She was a Fulbright uh, lecturer in Germany last year. She also has taught at the University of Utah, as well as teaching law for a time at Stanford University. She was a recipient of the Bernath Prize from the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations last year, given annually to one of the outstanding young scholars in the field, and her new work focuses especially on issues relating to the establishment of norms uh, with regard to transitional justice and human rights issues centered especially around the Nuremberg trials that followed the Second World War. So without further ado, Liz Borkwart. Thank you for that very fulsome introduction, Professor McMahon. And um, I'm told I have to wear this because of the podcast. Okay, I don't really need to be mic'd in a space like this. But um, anyway, this, this, um, this presentation is called The Mad Pursuit of a World Bill of Rights, International Legal Norms and the Senate after Nuremberg. And um, uh, this is a slice of a larger book project, as Professor McMahon indicated, which asks as its animating question um, how human rights came to be the most magnetic idea of the post-war era. And this talk has three parts. I talk about something called the Nuremberg Principles, 
coming out of the main Nuremberg trial of 1945-46, which was a document um, really probably distilled finally in 1950 that was a United Nations attempt to codify, some, an unsuccessful United Nations attempt to codify some of the outcomes um, of the, some of the international law learnings um, from the main Nuremberg trial. Um, I, I then use this, these so-called Nuremberg principles, which is really just a list, a short document, as emblematic of a variety of post-war multilateralist initiatives, right? notably the Genocide Convention, but coming out of the United Nations in 1948 through 1950, and their reception in the U.S. Senate, particularly around the um, Bricker Amendment controversy in 1953. And then there's a discussion at the end about... Um, norm formation in international law, right? All the political scientists are like, yes, finally. Um, and, uh, and what I'm calling the constitutionalization of these ideas, a, a sort of dynamic whereby um, even a document with a kind of unhappy history, like the Nuremberg Principles, can sort of lose the battle but win the war on some level in terms of really not having the kind of uh, post-war afterlife as codified international law and yet somehow manages to percolate through, for instance, domestic legal institutions in different kinds of ways and achieve a kind of cultural traction um, that's separate from enforceable legal status um, or or many of its dimensions, but still are extremely influential in um, various kinds of uh, political culture. So the seven so-called Nuremberg principles were an attempt to begin the codification process around issues of individual responsibility, um, right, the so-called devaluing the so-called Nuremberg defense, right, of I was only following orders that featured recently in a in a Doonesbury cartoon, so you know that something has really entered the culture, I guess, when it's in Doonesbury. Um, individual responsibility, the role of superior orders, um, and the relationship of domestic to international law in the wake of World War II. These principles also spelled out the so-called Nuremberg offenses of crimes against peace, war crimes, and crimes against humanity as punishable offenses under international law beyond the context of the war. The Nuremberg principles affect how military manuals are drafted to train soldiers, under what circumstances political leaders might be called to account for impunity, and the way we conceptualize international justice, shrinking alternatives to responding to mass atrocities with judicial proceedings. Even more broadly, the Nuremberg principles reinforce the idea of a direct relationship between violations of human dignity and some set of supranational legal norms, not necessarily dependent on the intervening layer of a possibly repressive nation state. This is a a PowerPoint-free environment, so I hope that you can adjust to that. Um, So the thickening of such a relationship is a key component of our contemporary conception of international human rights. In a U.S. context, the Nuremberg Principles have served as a site of contestation between what are some so-called inward-facing and outward-facing visions of the U.S. Constitution in international legal scholar Noah Feldman's recent framing. The Nuremberg Principles and related U.N. human rights instruments, um, such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the Genocide Convention, arguably lost what might be called the Bricker Amendment battle in domestic American politics in the late 1940s and early 1950s, and indeed throughout much of the Cold War era, 
Yet these same principles, viewed as part of a longer historical trajectory, and we were just talking about this <laughs> right before the talk, got to take the long view, um, seem to be winning a larger war over the legitimacy of a more expansive vision of rule of law ideals, including a burgeoning debate over what it means when a superpower systematically spurns those ideals. I recently received a book called Human Rights at the UN, The Political History of Universal Justice that does not mention the Nuremberg Principles and only touches the Nuremberg trials upon the Nuremberg trials themselves in passing. Um, similarly, historian of modern Europe, Tony Jutt's masterful book, Post-War, spends about uh, barely two pages on Nuremberg and human rights, respectively, in an 878-page book featuring a very textured and nuanced treatment of issues of guilt and responsibility. Former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, understandably rather less preoccupied with questions of guilt and responsibility, similarly does not mention Nuremberg at all, um, much less the Nuremberg Principles, in a detailed meditation on geopolitics focusing on the 20th century. Yet, the Nuremberg Principles are on another level so familiar that they are regularly invoked to the point of being taken for granted in legal and even popular cultures, especially in the West, including in Latin America. A casual reference to the principles features, in, I mentioned in a recent Doonesbury cartoon, Bertrand Russell and Jean-Paul Sartre um, staged a set of public hearings formerly named the International War Crimes Tribunal in the late 1960s to discuss U.S. accountability for Vietnam-era atrocities, um, which continued through a second set of hearings on human rights violations in Brazil, Chile, and Uruguay. After about 1990, the city of Nuremberg itself decided to embrace and to seek to shape the idea of a Nuremberg legacy and has recently designated itself as a city of peace and human rights, even as it prepares to put its famous courtroom 600 on display as part of a museum exhibition. Um, and I was recently there at a symposium that was sort of kicking off this museum project. Very interesting. These Nuremberg norms were not codified in an international instrument in the way originally envisioned by the General Assembly when it forwarded the Nuremberg Principles to the International Law Commission in 1947 initially. Um, it was, of course, nothing new to see powerful countries failing to sign up for international norms to be invoked against themselves, although many did include Nuremberg-related standards in their domestic laws and military manuals. As Nuremberg slipped into the past, it quickly became a kind of Cold War set piece, with one of the most lyrical passages of um, Chief Prosecutor and Supreme Court Justice um, Robert H. Jackson's opening statement becoming one of the most derided um, we must never forget that the record on which we judge these defendants today is the record on which history will judge us tomorrow. To pass these defendants a poisoned chalice is to put it to our own lips as well. In 1947, the General Assembly passed a, approved a resolution spelling out the principles of international law that had guided the Nuremberg Tribunal in reaching its judgment. As noted, these principles included the idea that individuals as well as states have obligations under international law and that the demands of international law may take precedence over national laws. The Nuremberg Principles also asserted that the Nuremberg crimes had transcended the status of treaty law and had entered the generally applicable realm of laws that are universally valid, whether or not a particular state has agreed to them. The historian Richard Overy has described, uh, has observed that what's striking about the summer of 1945 is that so much was achieved in the chaos of post-war Europe in building the foundations for contemporary international law on war crimes and contemporary conventions on human rights. 
he goes on to cite the creation of the International Criminal Court as a direct descendant of the Nuremberg Military Tribunal, right? And in, this is in 1998, the ICC, um, he, um, along with the European Convention on Human Rights and the Genocide Convention. These treaties, declarations, conventions, and institutions were meant to work together to produce international justice in an almost a kind of mechanistic way. Indeed, American internationalists, uh, contemporaneous American internationalists uh, at Nuremberg, many of them former New Dealers, would often speak about the United Nations using mechanical imagery, uh, that if, you know, if we can just design this machine correctly, it will, it will sort of produce um, these, these, these human rights, uh, perhaps as a way of depoliticizing the underlying implications for national sovereignty. So early post-war pronouncements by the U.S. State Department embed the development of what they then called a world rule of law ideology, not seeing that language too much anymore, um, in fairly straightforward institutional terms. A 1949 pamphlet on the U.N., again, coming out of the U.S. State Department, an international organization um, on the U.N. and international organization states plainly that a major goal of the post-war international order was, and I quote a lot, all right, but I'll just try to indicate with my voice when I'm quoting rather than, um, uh, a major goal of the post-war international order was the establishment of the methods and precedents of a world rule of law in which disputes among nations would be resolved just as most disputes among individuals are resolved today through recourse to a proper and established court of justice. After explaining that the United Nations exists today as a living organization accurately reflecting the aspirations, the difficulties, and the immaturities of our world society, the pamphlet goes on to assert, just a tad defensively, that the United Nations is not and never was intended to be a superstate. It is not a world government in the sense that the member states have assigned their sovereignty to a central body. But even this carefully hedged language dredged up some old American anxieties, complete with rhetoric reminiscent of interwar-era world court battles and even the ratification debates over the League of Nations. A number of activist domestic groups in the United States, including a powerful cadre within the American Bar Association, came to believe that America has been caught in a noose which can only be removed by a constitutional amendment. And moreover, that the American people want to make certain that no treaty or executive agreement will be effective uh, to deny or abridge their fundamental rights. Also, they do not want their basic human rights to be supervised or controlled by international agencies over which they have no control. This noose, um, from the language in this pamphlet, was any kind of multilateral treaty, such as the Genocide Convention or the UN Human Rights Covenants, but also included looser normative commitments, such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, or indeed the Nuremberg Principles themselves. One result of this agitation was the so-called Bricker Amendment controversy of 1951-53. The text of the proposed amendment underwent various mutations, but the debate centered on the possibility of amending Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution. Article 6? Anybody? Anybody? Right? Treaties co-equal with Constitution as laws of the land, okay? Um, to ensure that no treaty could alter domestic law. I saw you perk up when you heard it. Um, <laughs> oh, really? Okay, excellent. 
That's why I put this whole thing in there, actually. It was the Ohio connection. Um, to ensure that no treaty could alter domestic law unless Congress passed supplemental enabling legislation. Okay, that's ba- I mean, there are different versions of the Bricker Amendment, but that's basically what it argued. Um, an extremely cumbersome process, right, to close what Bricker Amendment proponents called a loophole in the Constitution through which our fundamental rights might be lost. John W. Bricker Republican senator from Ohio, who had served as Thomas E. Dewey's vice presidential running mate in 1944, launched the campaign for his eponymous amendment by asserting that my purpose in offering this resolution is to bury the so-called covenant on human rights so deep that no one holding high public office will ever dare to attempt its resurrection. More informally, he asserted that his proposed amendment would slow the State Department in its mad pursuit for a world bill of rights. All right, so that's where I take my title from because that's such a fantastic quote. Um, Even though the Bricker Amendment ultimately failed, when it was first introduced, it had 61 co-sponsors, including 44 of the 47 Republicans in the Senate, and thus was only two votes shy of the necessary two-thirds majority. The ferment around this proposed amendment put so much pressure on President President Eisenhower, um, a group called Vigilant Women for the Bricker Amendment, collected half a million signatures on behalf of this amendment within a few months, that the Eisenhower administration committed not to submit a number of human rights-related covenants, notably the Genocide Convention, to the Senate for ratification. They said, don't worry about it. We're not even going to bring them. We're not even going to bring them. um, We're not even going to bring them to the Senate. They won't have to be voted upon. As late as 1990, international relations scholar um, Natalie Hevner-Kaufman could assert that during the Bricker Amendment debates, human rights treaties were effectively branded as dangerous to the American way of life and cast into a senatorial limbo from which they have never been released. Such an analysis fits with a traditional rise and fall narrative about the U.S. reception of various kinds of multilateral initiatives in the post-war era. American multilateralism may have won certain battles, such as the struggle over the uh, uh, amendment, over the Bricker Amendment, but nevertheless somehow lost the wider war of which the U.S. unsigning of the ICC statute early on in the um, G.W. Bush administration is perhaps emblematic. A deep fear and mistrust of multilateralist initiatives, particularly those originating in the United Nations, underpinned much of the emotional support that the proposed Bricker Amendment received from American conservatives. Their disillusionment with the UN was embedded in a wider Cold War story. I can't even believe that I'm saying this in front of (laughs) these two scholars in particular. Let me tell you a wider Cold War story briefly in which this was embedded. Um, Taking in the 1949 defeat of Zhang Zixi, um, more widely known at the time as Zhang Kai-shek, the attendant loss of China to communism, the successful Soviet explosion of a nuclear device in September 1950, the conviction of State Department official Alger Hiss for perjury, also in 1950, and fears aroused by North Korean successes in the, early on in the Korean conflict. So all of, all of this, 1948 to 51. The Truman administration's strategy for garnering Senate approval of the Marshall Plan, initiated in 1947, had involved playing up conservative spheres of the Soviet threat as well as a deliberate strategy of further inflaming public anxieties. A strong supporter of the Bricker Amendment, Senator Everett Dirksen of Illinois, told the press, we are in a new era of international organization. They, meaning the UN, are grinding out treaties like so many eager beavers, which have an effect upon the rights of American citizens. 
Frank Holman, president of the American Bar Association in 1948, argued that the internationalists in this country and elsewhere really proposed to use the United Nations and the treaty process as a lawmaking process to change the domestic laws and even the government of the United States and to establish a world government along socialistic lines. So another way to say the same st- to tell the same story would be as part of a narrative. So we have a sort of Cold War story, but another way to tell this story would be as part of a narrative with a much longer-term trajectory in the history of U.S. foreign relations of authority and influence in the realm of diplomacy, gravitating away from the legislative and toward the executive branch. Eisenhower quickly determined that the Brooker Amendment would have to either be rejected outright or drastically modified, fearing it would hamstring the president's conduct of foreign policy in a nuclear age, and remarking at one point that this whole damn thing is senseless and plain damaging to the prestige of the United States. The president reportedly reportedly observed to his press secretary that if it's true that when you die that the things that bother you most are engraved on your skull, I'm sure I'll have there the mud and dirt of France and the name of Senator Bricker. Yet another domestic dimension to this controversy, so ably demonstrated by the historians Carol Anderson, Penny Von Eschen, and others, is the way the Bricker story may also be framed as a story of domestic racial politics. Amendment supporters argued that ratification of various proposed United Nations covenants on human rights, labor, and genocide would force upon American society socialized medicine, mandatory unionization, and especially racial desegregation and accountability for racialized violence. Or in ABA President Holman's memorable formulation, and this is kind of a long quote, but I I just think it's so worth it, all right? So this is Holman in a speech saying, I pointed out that if in driving me from the airport, a white driver had unfortunately run over a Negro child running out into the street in front of him, what would have been a local offense under a charge of gross negligence or involuntary manslaughter would, under the Genocide Convention, because of the racial differential, not be a local crime, but an international crime, and that the driver could be transported someplace overseas for trial, where he would not have any of the protections of the Bill of Rights. To these unilateralist critics, International norms and institutions for transnational governance were threatening to penetrate the domestic sphere in both traditional senses of that term, right? Domestic as in not international and domestic as in private realms of conduct that should be insulated from international or other kinds of official scrutiny. In addition to the race-related angle, this dimension of unilateralist outrage had a little gendered aspect to it as well. For example, Senate testimony offered in favor of the Bricker Amendment by one W.L. McGrath, president of Williamson Heater Company of Cincinnati, you know, um, and a representative of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce at the International Labor Organization. Okay, so he's representing this conservative U.S. group at the ILO, and then he comes back to testify in front of the Senate, where he notes with alarm how international agencies could use treaties as a device to institute socialistic legislation relating to issues such as maternity benefits, benefits for illegitimate children, or even time off for nursing mothers. And there's arguably a fourth way to frame our analysis of the Bricker Amendment episode. In addition to the Cold War story, the executive authority story, and the race and gender stories outlined um, before, we might also fold in a narrative about Supreme Court jurisprudence, or more specifically, the congressional response to an era of anxiety over the constitutional role of treaties initiated by the ruling in Missouri against Holland in 1920 and not assuaged until Reed against Covert 
1957. Let me just say a little bit about each of those cases and the relationship between them. Missouri against Holland interpreted Article 6 of the Constitution as upholding the federal government's ability to regulate activity that would otherwise fall within the jurisdiction of states. And the actual case, the actual underlying dispute, involved a treaty that the State Department had negotiated with Great Britain protecting flocks of migratory birds flying south from Canada. So basically, the State Department argued that if you're trying to negotiate a treaty that's going to migratory birds fly over many states, it's silly to negotiate that on a state-by-state basis. It has to be the State Department that deals with Britain was still the colonial power, right, in Canada. So these are birds that are flying back and forth between the United States and Canada. Expansive language in Justice Holmes's opinion in Missouri against Holland struck fear into conservatives of various stripes, not exclusively those who I'm calling unilateralists, but also those whom we would now call strict constructionists. In explaining how such a treaty necessarily implied the supremacy of the federal government's ability to make treaties over competing concerns about states' rights, um, right, with the bird situation, Holmes offered this statement, this very famous statement about a living constitution. He said, when we are dealing with words that are also a constituent act, like the Constitution of the United States, we we must realize that they have called into life a being, the development of which could not have been foreseen completely by even the most gifted of its begetters. Even now, it's hard to imagine a more succinct statement of how norms might over time become constitutionalized. Contemporaneous critics were also alert to these implications. While one Bricker Amendment supporter complained that the Holmes opinion left the Tenth Amendment dead as a dodo, Bricker himself explained that the major problem is not how to protect states' rights as such, but how to protect all purely domestic matters, federal and state, from the consuming ambition of the United Nations and its specialized agencies to regulate those matters by treaty. The 1957 Supreme Court holding in Reed against Covert quieted some of these concerns. Okay, but again, the whole Bricker Amendment thing comes up in between, right, 53. Um, There the court held that agreements with foreign powers could not abrogate the Bill of Rights and that no agreement with a foreign nation can confer power on Congress or on any other branch of government which is free from the constraints of the Constitution, in Justice Black's plurality opinion. In Reed, the decision reversed the conviction of an American civilian on an overseas military base who had been convicted by a military tribunal of murdering her husband, um, a member of the U.S. Armed Forces. All right, so she's on a base. She's overseas. She's committed this crime. She's a civilian, um, and her husband was a, a, a military man. A treaty or an executive agreement could not deprive Covert of her right to a jury trial. Okay, so she, she can't go before a military tribunal um, without without a jury. Um, The court's decision in Reed undercut the Bricker position that a constitutional amendment was necessary to protect the Constitution from being gutted by executive agreements and treaties, quite intentionally, according to some correspondence between Justices Black and Frankfurter. At a minimum, these four different tellings of the Bricker story all support the assertion that domestic politics are a key determinant as to whether multilateralist initiatives stand or fall, with a further refinement Um, from a very quirky book that I like very much by an Australian journalist, uh, Kirsten Sellars, called The Rise and Rise of Human Rights, um, that the viability of post-war human rights-related proposals was inversely correlated with the virulence of domestic Cold War uh, preoccupations. 
Um, so human rights efflorescence as Cold War anxieties um, are somewhat in abeyance. Um, I mean, just in a relationship with each other unfolding through the post-war era. Um, such a frame offer, also offers a twist on the um, what I might call the Gary Bass thesis in his Stay the Hand of Vengeance regarding the prote- projection of domestic legal norms by liberal states to take in the circumstances um, when international legal norms are able to percolate into um, domestic political debates. So we might describe human rights ideas as... Um, um, uh, well, actually, okay. We might describe human rights ideas as becoming constitutionalized because of the way they, again, I like this image of sort of percolating through specific institutions in concrete operational ways, such as the way the Nuremberg principles are being adopted in the constitutive documents of all modern international criminal tribunals, in the words of uh, an ICT, uh, International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, ICTY, um, Defense Council. Um, such institutions have generative power in Cardozo's language, in the most basic sense of constituting something new. This level includes expressions at regional levels, such as the way the EU has developed a treaty regime at its core that now trumps later laws deemed to be inconsistent, even when duly enacted by member states. This institutionalizing level also includes incorporation into domestic law. Democratic theorist Sheila Ben-Habib calls these domestic processes jurisgenerative politics, where the transparency of democratic states allows citizens to become increasingly convinced of the independent validity of human rights-related norms. And one example might be the way the criteria related to medical experimentation, stemming actually from one of the subsequent Nuremberg trials, the so-called doctor's trial, became codified internationally, but then adopted nationally in a variety of environments as the so-called Nuremberg Code, right? the Nuremberg Code about uh, human experimentation. Um, both in domestic legislation and in the U.S. as part of the Code of Research Ethics of the American Medical Association. Um, Again, the key distinction um, uh, is not so much domestic versus international or written versus unwritten as it is sort of institutionalized versus aspirational or in the terms of some strands of social theory, thick versus thin. The Nuremberg moment was a turning point in what international relations scholar Andrew Hurl calls the marked and normatively highly significant shift towards individual criminal responsibility for grave human rights violations. Institutionally, of course, the clearest post-Cold War offspring of Nuremberg-related lineage are the various ad hoc international courts and tribunals, uh, most notably the tribunals established for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and of course the creation of the International Criminal Court but also in the increased number of domestic trials, such as trials in Spain for human rights abuses in Latin America. This lineage also arguably includes processes that do not involve assigning individual criminal responsibility, but nevertheless address issues of accountability, transparency, and due process that we would clearly recognize as being Nuremberg-inspired. These images of outward-spreading norms are nevertheless uh, met with a marked lack of enthusiasm in some quarters, often by the very epistemic communities of professionals in the best position to take advantage of entrenching their own interests on a wider world stage. Legal scholar Bruce Ackerman writes of the turn towards constitutionalism and judicial review at the national level in Eastern Europe and elsewhere in the wake of the fall of the Berlin Wall. He notes how, by contrast, If anything, and this is his language, if anything, American practice and theory have moved in the direction of emphatic provincialism, 
Over the past decade, we have been grappling with the original understanding of the Constitution of 1787, the Bill of Rights, and the Reconstruction Amendments with new intensity. Whatever the utility of these debates for Americans, it does not engage the texts that have, been paramount, that have paramount constitutional significance for the rest of the world, the paradigmatic documents written by Western liberals in the traumatic aftermath of the Second World War, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, or the European Convention, or the German Constitution. Moreover, the developing legitimacy of these norms, what legal theorist Gerald Newman calls their suprapositive status, seems to be, uh, if anything, consolidating over time, even in the teeth of U.S. opposition. Despite the pronounced lack of enthusiasm in official U.S. circles, we do indeed seem to be moving from, say, amorphous human rights norms about dignity towards a more concrete corpus of human rights law about accountability in a perhaps unexpected challenge to received ideas about American exceptionalism. All right, so I'll just conclude. Um, the relationship between the Nuremberg process and modern war crimes tribunals is not a one-way street in the assessment of um, this ICTY defense attorney who I quoted before, Gwenelle Metro, great, great name. Um, he elaborates on how the Nuremberg trial has itself grown in stature and significance. both historically and legally, with the advent of its modern successors. In a previous publication, I drew a parallel between the iconic stature of the Nuremberg idea and that, actually, of President Franklin Roosevelt himself, noting how FDR's early reputation as a controversial and somewhat amateurish figure has become steadily more burnished with the passage of time. So, too, with the Nuremberg trial, what was in many ways perceived as a dubious and controversial set of innovations has become over the ensuing decades a touchstone in the development of human rights ideas and institutions. Um, even as the Nuremberg process suffered from various kinds of ambiguities, inconsistencies, and incoherencies, in Anson Rabenbach's words, it quietly filled in with norms about fairness and proportionality what it lacked in pre-existing positive law. As an institution, it was also embedded in a nascent UN system that implicitly promised that this was just the beginning, that these standards would apply to everybody, right? Remember the Robert H. Jackson quote, right, from the beginning of this presentation, and would be thickening still further over time. These drastically disappointed expectations have themselves proved something of an engine of historical change in the post-Cold War era. Yet reconnecting with the legacies of Nuremberg in the post-Cold War world does not mean recreating Nuremberg. In a recent public address, Chief ICC Prosecutor Louis Moreno Ocampo po uh, pointed to a kind of cultural thickening of the, of the design of prosecutions under the auspices of the ICC in the way these prosecutions have a dedicated role for the victims, for example, which was not present at Nuremberg, um, in line with civil law and African law traditions rather than clinging exclusively to Anglo-American designs as well as the threat of an ICC prosecution could play a salutary role in internal diplomatic negotiations and conflicts that are still unfolding. He affirmatively seeks that role. Um, Moreno Ocampo explained how the ICC ICC's design, articulated in its founding Rome Treaty as complementarity, is more than a treaty. It is also a monitoring system and a global justice system based in national states. A more thoroughgoing study of the longer-term legacies of Nuremberg 
would also help to broaden our field of vision to larger trends in the legal dimensions of transnational governance, as well as the impact of human rights ideas and institutions more generally. Already in 1954, international lawyer and Austrian emigre Josef Kunz had his finger on the pulse of what turned out to be a more enduring trend than even he could imagine, when he sardonically observed that he who dedicates his life to the study of international law in these troubled times is sometimes struck by the appearance as if there were fashions in international law just as in neckties. After noting that a large interwar literature analyzing the international protection of minorities was no longer au courant, pate, Carol Fink, um, he then pointed out that recently this fashion has become nearly obsolete, right, looking at uh, uh, minority treaties. Today, the well-dressed international lawyer wears human rights. And not just well-dressed lawyers. College students, museum curators, and bloggers have all been suiting up, helping us look beyond more elite political and legal responses to a more wide-ranging democratization of the past through the creation of historical consciousness. Thank you very much. And that, yeah, and I welcome your questions, absolutely. Do you have a question? You looked very perky back there. Well, it's here someone with a hand. <laughs> Would you discuss uh, what consequence has come out of this thing? You know, bad people going to jail, that kind of thing, or genocide culture in its tracks. Well, I think that it's, um, you know, bad people are still doing bad things, um, and there have been... Uh, a number of genocides, depending on how you parse them, since World War II. Um, I mean, I think what, as a historian of ideas, um, I think what I'm looking at is more, you know, just those sort of extraordinary developments such as um, when China hosted the Olympics, for instance. They went to great pains to sort of set aside these free speech areas that were then, you know, very kind of administered in very troubling ways. And there were all these different kinds of issues related to, I mean, why do they even care at all? In other words, why has this discourse become so dominant that even blatant human rights offenders feel that they need to engage with it and bounce off of it in various kinds of ways? Um, I mean, I think there is a certain, um, I don't know, political scientists like to use the image of stickiness to these institutions um, where they do generate a certain kind of culture and a certain kind of framework that um, uh, you could say, uh, I don't know, there's an argument that there's probably more slavery in the world today. There are more slaves in the world today than there were in the 19th century. Um, but slavery, genocide, and depending on who you talk to, torture, um, uh, come under this uh, idea of sort of use Kogan's norms um, the international legal term that, you know, no one, if you do it, you know you're doing wrong. Um, and I, so I, th I think that it's not that no one's doing it. Um, and so I think then the question is, um, you know, how does that thickening process work, um, ideally to change behavior more than it currently does? What do you work on yourself? I know it's a very interdisciplinary group, so. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think that the, um, an institutional, an example of successful institutionalization would probably be the so-called Nuremberg Code for Medical Ethics um, that was adopted by the AMA long before it ever became part of the U.S. Code, long before it ever became um, 
a, a law, right? Um, it's a norm before it's a law. And so, you know, I, I'm just interested in how that process works, I guess. Sir, and, and actually, maybe just to help me, you could say just something, just sort of who you are and what you work on, because I'm, I'm sorry that I don't necessarily know, but I'm, I'm new to Ohio State, so. Uh, Um, well, I mean, I think that I actually cut out a part in the interest of time um, about how some of these ideas play into, for example, there's a, um, still a very live debate over, for instance, um, uh, the, the advisability or, I mean, stronger than advisability, you know, sort of ethics of citing uh, any kind of non-U.S. law in Supreme Court opinions, right? And there was a there was a bill in the Senate saying, you know, that the Supreme Court shall not cite foreign law, you know, and, and um, um, which I think didn't pass. But still, I mean, it's this is this is a very live, live debate. There was a long piece in the New Yorker about the the justices' sort of different uh, philosophies regarding the um, the sort of the probative value of they were calling they weren't saying international legal norms because they would be looking at specific rulings of, for instance. I don't know, if you read a South African Supreme Court case, it will cite um, rulings from Canada, from the United States, from Great Britain, um, tends to be um, uh, areas that are perceived as having a, a somewhat similar legal culture. Um, the U.S. used to do that and has pretty much stopped. Um, and so, I mean, I think there's a very lively debate, um, sometimes carried out in the texts of the opinions, about the advisability of doing that and, and sort of what it means um, to cite uh, the decision of a foreign court or, or foreign laws. Um, um, and particularly in connection with, you know, really controversial, um, you know, cases around, you know, rights-related cases, for instance, particularly death penalty-related cases. Do you have a hand? Professor Wu. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the benefit of those who might not, we were we were in a graduate program together. So. <laughs> Well, it's funny, you know, I mean, this is, this is um, a pretty new project, as you may have gathered, um, and that I'm tentatively calling the Nuremberg Idea, um, in part to kind of break it out of, uh, I mean, to enable me to talk about um, laws, but also rules, norms, institutions, and then this kind of amorphous zeitgeisty stuff, right, that makes me kind of uncomfortable, too. Um, but to try and figure out... Um, you know, just sort of what the relationship is. I mean, like, who cares if something is mentioned in a Dunesbury cartoon, right? And I'm, I'm not a cultural historian, actually, so I find this kind of stuff a little bit scary. Um, but I, I think that um, um, that's one of the reasons that I like making uh, the main Nuremberg trial into a kind of touchstone, because I think a lot of the, um, the uh, well, certainly in the immediate post-war era, international lawyers who were, were 
you know, Nuremberg was their touchstone in terms of talking about what they were trying to do was to codify some of these ideas. And they really saw, for instance, um, you know, the genocide convention um, as being very strongly linked. I mean, genocide, there's, um, genocide is mentioned in passing in Nuremberg. It's actually a myth that it's not mentioned at the actual trial. Um, but it's really not internalized, all right? So you have all these sort of um, legacies. And uh, I guess I'm mostly interested in, I mean, I, it's an international study. Um, but I'm also, you know, I'm interested in what happens in the 1990s, um, in particularly the city of Nuremberg itself. I mean, this was a little piece where I was sort of saying, well, you know, how can I internationalize this more to look at this kind of post-war processing and what it means. Um, and the city of Nuremberg itself lobbied very heavily to be the site of the ICC, first of all, obviously unsuccessfully. Um, and they're having, you know, they're developing this kind of, uh, I, I, I had to stop myself from saying it's strange, but to me it's a little strange, but, but they're developing this very proactive kind of cultural signature of they have a street of human rights they have, uh, that has a pillar for each of the um, articles in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, in German and in a language of um, some people who've had their rights denied a lot. Uh, and not exclusively by Germans, right? Like Navajo, <laughs> rather pointedly. Um, and uh, they're trying, you know, they have film festivals, they have this museum that they just started. They're really trying to create, and I mean, again, it's very amorphous, but they're working very hard to create what they will very openly call a human rights consciousness. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of what school children see and what they talk about. Um, they've opened a museum that is really um, devoted to the idea of kind of who became a perpetrator and why. Um, and, uh, you know, can we then say that this will lead to fewer human rights violations down the road? I don't know. Um, but it's certainly something that they seem to be embracing very proactively. And it was this most amorphous kind of level of institutionalization that I felt was... Um, I wanted to almost kind of take it away from the cultural historians and integrate it into um, some of the discussions of law and politics that hitherto had interested me a little bit more. And so one of the questions that I was trying to ask in this recent piece of research um, that I was connecting when I was over there was sort of why the 90s? You know, why was there ex this explosion of interest and grappling in the, and in France too, of course. I mean, there are, and there are obvious kinds of answers about, well, end of the Cold War, people had a little more psychic space. You know, a lot of the, the, the generation that actually fought the war is dying off. And I mean, they, you know, there are certain kinds of explanations that aren't that mysterious. Um, but it's consistent and, you know, very, very striking um, when you're in Germany and to a lesser extent in, in France that, um, you know, this really is something new. Uh, sir. I'd be interested in your historical perspective comparing the Booker Senate and the Senate, the U.S. Senate today. So we have a situation where we have uh, two United States that have been ratified by close to 200 other states, including rights of women, rights of child, etc. Uh, and uh, how do you see the change or evolution of the Senate between the Booker days and today? Well, I mean, let me take it from the perspective of the treaties, all right, because I, um, I, I, I mean, I, I, I think there was a lot of 
what even during the most recent election, you could you could see a lot of what you knew would turn out to be false optimism about the fate or the the next um, the the next act of some of these treaties. Um, this was during the election was when I was again, in Germany, and Germans were just, they were like, it's going to be so great. You know, the U.S. is going to re-sign the ICC, and maybe they'll do it in the Nuremberg courtroom. You know, it'll be so cool. What a, you know, what a great moment that will be kind of thing. And I was in the position of saying, don't hold your breath, right? Um, and so, I mean, the piece that interests me is um, not so much Senate dynamics, although, I mean, I know what everyone else sees on TV, right, about things becoming polarized, and I think they were pretty polarized in Bricker's era, too, I would have to say. But what interests me is looking at something like the convention of the, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and trying to figure out, you know, kind of what is the U.S. backstory for non-ratification? Um, I mean, we signed but didn't ratify, right? So what, where it's the United States and basically Sudan that have not um, ratified, right? Somalia. And uh, Somalia, okay. And so, okay. And, and so um, you know, and I mean, as far as I can see, it seems to be the provision about child soldiers. I'd be interested to hear your perspective. Um, but that the, the CDC, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, specifies that, you know, no child soldiers, and it defines the age as 18. And my understanding is that, um, you know, the U.S. military just took a very strong position saying, we, you know, we induct soldiers at 17, and it's very important for us to be able to go into high schools and recruit um, so that then we can also reach even younger um, students, children, um, and that we, we want to be a presence in those high schools, basically. And then if it's, and, and we want these 17 year olds. And so if it's made 18, that's, we're fencing ourselves off from a very important constituency, and it's just non negotiable. I mean, I'm sure there are other reasons too. Um, but, I mean, I'm curious, is that a particular interest of yours, that specific treaty? Because it's actually, in some ways, not that easy to sort of get under the surface of some of these debates. Well, CEDAW, um, I, I think, came under um, a sort of package of Cold War-era treaties, including the... Um, uh, uh, the UN Convention on Social and Economic Rights, I mean, not exactly the same time, obviously, but that sort of historical moment, again, where there was a very strong um, uh, U.S. push against social and economic rights as being a kind of Soviet-tainted polarization. And I just think that it's, you know, even subsequent democratic administrations, notably Carter administration, um, but even now, um, I think there's always the sense that it's just never the right time to revisit it. Um, I don't have a sense with CEDAW of a specific pr provision. That's, the, that's a real hang-up, the way um, the Convention on the Rights of the Child is. But there may be one. Um, I don't know. Um, other questions? Say, don't forget to say who you are. Okay. Cause, uh, oh, yes. Okay. I think you're coming to dinner, right? Yay. Well, you know, I mean, I think it's it's sort of a sad tale of declension in many ways, right? Um, and uh, I mean, I think a lot of the 
um, the strongest institutions are the most robust or influential, I guess he's gone, but the most influential institutions um, have really grown up outside of the UN, alongside the UN umbrella. Um, and here I would point to that, for instance, the ad hoc tribunals, um, the ICTY, the ICTR, and that that's really, there's a, you know, a certain sense that that may actually be the future, you know, the provisoire qui dure kind of thing, that um, it's obviously those are UN authorized and sanctioned, and the Security Council has to vote, right? So there's a, there's a, a UN role, um, but there's, I think, a sense that um, uh, a group that's convened, let's put it this way, for a specific um, conflict or controversy um, is going to be more agile. And that's a sad story in many ways because it's always going to be, you know, after the fact and in response to political pressure. And, um, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of paralysis in the... Um, uh, the UN Charter system um, right now. Anyone else? Oh, okay. Yes. And say who you are. Sorry. Oh yes. Okay. That nice. Yes. Yes. You. Yes. You reviewed my book. Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, I agree with that completely, with that very incisive comment. And then the question is, you know, kind of what is the Archimedean point <laughs> from which we're looking at this trajectory? Because it affects the kind of story that we tell. Absolutely. I agree completely. And so, you know, I mean, I'm very interested in that moment when Dean Acheson goes to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and says, don't worry about the Genocide Convention. Okay, I'm never bringing it forward. You know, we will never be bringing it forward. And then in 1988... Um, it is ultimately ratified. Um, and so, but then, you know, there's a question of, well, okay, what effect does that have? But, uh, you know, just it, it, it then means that future U.S. administrations just do backflips in order to not label something genocide. Um, so then you have another kind of iteration of, you know, what's the real impact? So I agree with that completely. Um, and I think that I, I was... I got started with, you know, I mean, the New Deal book, with which you're obviously familiar, was trying to tell a kind of counter-cyclical story um, that I would read a lot of Cold War historians, your good self accepted, who would try to say, the organizing question was kind of, when did the Cold War begin? 
And the answer was always the same, no matter what the date was, which was earlier than you think. Um, and you know, so I, I, I started wanting to carve out this kind of, uh, to say there was a, a space in the early 40s. Well, I'm not saying this to you, because you've read it. But, but there was a, a moment in the early 40s when there were certain kinds of multilateralist initiatives in the United States, such as the Nuremberg Charter, such as the United Nations Charter, such as the Bretton Woods Charters, which were the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, right? They were all getting off the ground at about the same time, and they were part of a kind of integrated vision of world order um, that was in many ways spearheaded by these kind of young New Deal lawyers, I mean, obviously they had instructions, but it was sort of the same second and third level folks who were negotiating these charters across institutions. And it really wasn't, to me, sorry, much of a Cold War story. Um, and so I, I, I think I may have sort of gone overboard in trying to, people were like, you know, does, is the Soviet Union feature at all <laughs> um, um, in your analysis? But I think in some ways, um, I'm doing the same kind of thing over a larger sweep. I'm not necessarily in a relationship with the Cold War, but just sort of saying um, there's a different kind of story about, I don't know, maybe um, this, this kind of unilateralist constituency and their opponents about these battles going through the, the, the um, post-war era that um, we can just tell it a different way. That's a great example. That's a very helpful framing, and I think it's it's in there, but I think it's too oblique. I agree with that completely because you know, in, in when I start to talk about the Bricker era rhetoric, I you know I say, well, this is familiar. You know, this this language has a lot of traction. You know, going back to League of Nations debates, right? And so those, I mean, that's a very I should just use the word because I think that's absolutely right, um, and that's why again this kind of language has legs, I guess, right, and continues to. So it's an excellent point. Thank you. Um, yes, Professor McMahon. On, on a different point, I, um, how would you compare the legacy of the Nuremberg trials with the Tokyo War Crime trials? Ha! Got a minute? Okay, well, I'll, I'll try to keep, keep that very short. But, um, um, I, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that Nuremberg, I mean, again, I made the point in the presentation that it's been kind of burnished over time, right? That it was perceived as, I don't know, I was talking to a um, historian of Germany at Harvard, Charlie Mayer, who professed to remember Nuremberg in real time. He's like, ah, we thought it was a joke. Um, and then I looked it up, and he was eight at the time of Nuremberg. So I'm like, well, I'm sure he was very, you know, 
precocious. But anyway, um, so apparently, you know, eight-year-old Charlie Mayer thought Nuremberg was a joke. But I mean, that was a very common um, in real time. And also, if you look at, for instance, public opinion polls unfold in Germany unfolding over the post-war era, it's really, um, it's by no means a linear upward swing. So Nuremberg somehow has attracted all this legitimacy. I mean, albeit a troubled legitimacy. But if you ask the question about, you know, was it better to do it or not to do it, um, even um, a lot of very solid critics of the trial would say, well, it kind of makes it over the line, all right? Maybe just over the line, depending on who you talk to, but definitely over the line. Whereas Tokyo, um, I'd say there's a scholarly consensus among lawyers and um, um, other kinds of scholars, like Judith Schlar, the political theorist, that um, Tokyo was just completely illegitimate. And yet the trials are really, you know, they're sort of strikingly similar. I mean, there are some obvious contrasts, like, you know, Hirohito was not tried. Um, Hitler would have been tried. There's a very clear consensus in the documents when they're talking about trials while Hitler is still alive. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of differences that are quite important, but they basically used identical charters, and so how can you say that one was, uh, you know, had this legitimacy and the other just completely fails to make it across that line? So this question I'm really looking at in my own scholarship right now because I think it points to the power of very small differences. Um, I mean, really, the, you know, Nuremberg had kind of the A team, not universally, but, um, you know, whereas Tokyo, Joseph Keenan, the U.S. chief prosecutor, was, you know, an alcoholic and not that smart, and, you know, but I, I mean, I'm just, just sort of look, going through sort of systematically what were the differences. Um, you know, kind of looking, I mean, there's a little bit of a prescriptive subtext in the sense of, you know, what's the difference that makes a difference in terms of, you know, that the, the Tokyo was just, Tokyo trial was just that much more of a U.S. show um, because MacArthur was the um, uh, authority promulgating the charter, and I mean, other kinds of differences. Um, and uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say I have a definitive answer yet, but what interests me now is that the, uh, when you sort of list them on paper, the contrasts are actually, I guess, smaller than you might think, considering the difference in the sort of reception of these trials. You've, you had a hand a while ago, is that right? Or did, you, did the moment pass? No? Is your hand up? For a different sort of question? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I just, with my peripheral vision, I guess, is not that good, so I missed you. Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I think I'm, I'm sort of in that second camp, in the kind of regressive camp. I mean, I think it's possible to tell sort of a happy story. Um, it's also possible to tell, I guess, an almost completely regressive story, right? You can kind of cherry pick incidents. Um, but um, the, uh, let's see. Um, I think the, Sorry, no, I had an example now, and it's just, it's just gone. Um, but I, I, I think that over time, um, mm, um, let's see. 
I, I like the regressive story more in many ways, um, even though I think I'm a naturally optimistic person, in part because I get a lot of questions, for instance, related to uh, the New Deal, for instance, where people would say, you know, isn't the New Deal just a mask for preserving capitalism? Um, and I would say, well, you know, the key question, the key word there is probably just, you know, and that there's a kind of moment of fluidity when, you know, I'll sort of be openly prescriptive here, when things could be tugged in a sort of more progressive direction. And those moments interest me. And I think there's an, a kind of analog in talking about human rights that people will say, um, uh, you know, aren't human rights just a mask for imperialism? Um, and again, I think it's the, um, they're that and something else, right? The New Deal was a, a mask for preserving capitalism and it was something else. And so I think it's the, it's the something else that interests me. And so I think I just have to be careful um, about that that's not, again, this sort of selectivity and that's not the only story that I tell. Um, but insofar as I have kind of progressive notes in this symphony, um, you know, I have to make sure that I tell these other kinds of stories as well. Well, I mean, I think that it's, that's, that's an example where you could talk about maybe you could tell a little bit of a progressive story about the codification of international law, right? Because, for instance, the specific provision coming out of Nuremberg um, related to crimes against humanity has been, in the post-war era, expanded. So when you see it in, um, I don't know, where is it, like Common Article 3 of the Geneva Convention, other places where um, there's talk about crimes against humanity, the, the, the way it's defined in um, certainly the ICTY, ICTR charters, there's, you know, it's, it's deliberately expanded to include um, civil war-related conflict, whereas it explicitly wasn't in Nuremberg. You know, the, I mean, the language looks like it might be good about capturing um, atrocities that were committed against a domestic minority population before the outbreak of transborder armed conflict, right? What does that mean in a World War II era con con um, con context? It means German atrocities against German Jews, right, before the invasion of Poland. How could those be captured by this charter? And in the end, um, they w that's in the charter, but it was the, the tribunal said we're not going to interpret it that way. Um, we don't think that we can look at... Um, crimes against humanity that were committed before a trans-border armed conflict. Um, and Robert H. Jackson was very open about this in the negotiations around the London Charter, where he said, you know, I think our southern senators are going to have a really big problem. There was a thought initially that the Nuremberg Charter would have to go through the Senate. Ultimately, it didn't have to. But um, uh, Jackson said, you know, I think our southern senators are going to have a really big problem with this definition that, the, you know, the international community can somehow go after um, atrocities against, again, a, a domestic minority population not in time of war because what is that, right? Lynching in the South. Um, and so you see this language in the charter, but then the, the tribunal says, you know, it's going to be very restrictive. Um, and that's 
falling away now, right? That's the only. That's how you can even have an ICTR. All right. I wish I had, you know, thought of that with my first questioner. But I'm much better on the 40s. <laughs> so um, anyway, but thank you for that. Um, so are we? I just. I know. Well, those of you who have any other questions, I'm sure Liz will stay around for a few minutes and talk to you individually. Oh, sure. Thanks. Thank you very much.